Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, January 25th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to read a couple brief reader emails in the mailbag. We're going to discuss the latest film and TV news, and we'll visit Ben, Brad, and Chris in Park City to hear about the first day of Sundance. Uh, this is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta and Jenny Mantis podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Y-Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. So uh, we have the house to ourselves, guys. Brad, Ben, and Chris are in Utah right now. Um, they're in the second day of Sundance. Uh, and news has also slowed down because most of the industry is in Park City. But we have uh, a couple things to talk about today. But before we get to that, I want to uh, get into the mailbag. And before we get to that, actually... I want to plug a couple things that are on the site today because I think they're interesting. Yeah, so Jack Giroux did an interview with uh, director Karen Kusama about her film Destroyer, which stars Nicole Kidman as a sort of hard-boiled detective. And um, he talked to her about uh, filming in L.A. And, and showing a whole new side of L.A. as well as a whole new side to Nicole Kidman, who undergoes quite a physical transformation uh, in this film. She's very... Um, uh, stripped down and very gritty, uh, a word that many people hate to use. I couldn't think of another word. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a great interview and you should uh, check it out on our site. Yeah. And also today, Rob Hunter has the latest in his long going column on our site, the best movies you've never seen. Uh, this one focuses on movies set in boys schools. And I, I really, I've talked about this in the past on the site. We actually have had Rob on talking about this column. He continually, every how often does this run? Uh, every two weeks. Every two weeks, yeah. Uh, he continually comes up with lists of movies that are, one, worth seeing, and two, that you probably have never seen, maybe not even heard of. Um, and in this list of movies, I've seen none of them. So uh, if you're looking for you know a way to discover new movies, I highly recommend checking out Rob Hunter's list. And, and he, I also love that he goes into... 
you know, it's not like here's the best comedies you've never seen. It's here's the best movies set at boys' schools that you've never seen. It's, <laughs> it's very so specific. Niche. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of really good streaming columns uh, written by members of the staff and freelancers. The most recent one, the youngest one, is actually about the oldest movie. And that's uh, Britt Hayes has been doing Hidden Streams, which is once Filmstruck died, uh, she came to the idea of saying, let's do a, can I do a column where I write about older movies and classics that, uh, are still streaming because it proved that we don't need to film struck to find you know all find more classics. So the idea behind hidden streams is that every movie on this list is a streaming film made before 1985. And this year uh, she has some a good mix. I mean this week she has some a good mix. There's um, a crazy slasher movie uh, in in Sleepaway Camp, uh, the King of Comedy, Martin Scorsese's most underrated movie, Chinatown, the really amazing noir film from the 70s. I mean like if you're the kind of person who who misses film struck and is still waiting for that gap be filled uh brit's column is actually a lifesaver it really helps point out where all the classics really are yeah okay moving on to the mailbag uh we have two brief emails that i wanted to read off before it gets too old teal from irvine california writes in after our episode yesterday talking about the insane uh twists in serenity that it reminded uh them of a few weeks ago when jacob mentioned a card game about pitching movie ideas to studio execs and other players could stop mid-pitch and throw in a curveball uh they feel like this is is how this movie came about that it started off as a traditional pulpy thriller and then midway through uh you know someone threw in uh you know i'm not gonna have spoilers here uh but you know a curveball and instead of being treated as a joke everybody took it seriously it's called pitch storm and it's a game where you take two cards to make a movie plot and then another player can throw in a studio note card to mess it up it's very fun yeah we talked about that in the water cooler um Alyssa F. wrote in in response to uh, during our Oscar nominations podcast, I made the off the cuff uh, comment, uh, the the um, what I, I want to say irresponsible, but no, maybe um, ignorant comment that I d- didn't understand why uh, producers get the best picture award. They accept the best picture award and the director is not involved. I want to clarify here that what I meant was I think the director should also be getting that award alongside the producers. Not that the producers weren't worthy of getting that award. But anyways, Alyssa writes in saying that uh, she thinks it's a common uh, misconception that producers are only dealing with the financial aspects of a film when in many cases producers can be a large part, if not the largest part of the creative process behind the film. Many times producers work on projects for years maybe even decades before a director comes on board. And once the director is in place, the producer still has a lot of say over uh, the control of the film. Of course, there are times when the director is the true visionary of the film and had developed the project initially. But in most of these cases, you will also find that the director is often the producer on those cases. So uh, I think that's worth mentioning uh, because, you know... Guys, when you are recording a podcast and you are saying thing, you know, talking for a half an hour a day about stuff, you're bound to say some stupid stuff. So, so I will, I, I will take responsibility there. Uh, but my intentions were that I think the director should receive the best picture award alongside alongside the producers. Um, you know, let's get into the news. Uh, let's start off with uh, the Spider-Man spinoff, Morbius. Uh, yesterday, they announced some uh, uh, interesting bit of casting. Yeah, Matt Smith, who's best known for playing the lead in Doctor Who from 2009 through 2014, has joined Morbius in a role that has not been 
described yet. Uh, knowing how the film industry has treated Matt Smith since the end of Doctor Who, my guess is he's playing a villain. He tends to play villainous types or uncouth types, even on The Crown, where he's playing a real historical member of the British royal family. He's treated as being, you know, sort of uh, sort of a, a foil to Queen Elizabeth. He's treated as sort of the a guy who gets in the way and messes up. And also, Term- Terminator uh, Genesis cast him very poorly <laughs> um, as as Skynet, as the human personification of Skynet. So I, th- I think he's, yeah, he has, because he's British, because he has a look about him, I think he's very easy to cast as a villain. And I think that since a lot of Morbius, the living vampire, the character Jared Leto is playing in this movie, tends to face off against supernatural Marvel villains, I think he has a really good face for makeup, a really good face you could you know, put on, put the right colors, put the right latex on it, and suddenly he's a really, really good monster. At the same time, looking at Matt Smith, and uh, I mean, it's no disrespect, he has such a unique look, such a, he looks unlike any other human being maybe ever lived. So I feel like he should have been playing Morbius here. He's the one who should be playing the the, the heroic slash anti-heroic vampire um, who sometimes fights fight Spider-Man and sometimes does not. He looks born to play that part. And I kind of, I'm kind of sad he's probably going to play the villain here because I think he, I don't want to see Jared Leto star in anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have much experience with Matt Smith outside of, you know, Terminator uh, Genesis. I know he's going to be in upcoming Star Wars Episode Nine, probably as part of the First Order, I assume. Uh, you know, he was a big part of Doctor Who, which uh, I know, HT, you love. Yes. And he was my favorite doctor, too. He has such a an offbeat, quirky um, way about him that the, the role suited him so well. And I, I'm so I'm very bummed that all of his roles following that doesn't tap into the talents that he has for just um, other types of characters other than like the, the stiff British villain, which uh, is upsetting. And yeah, he's a weird looking dude. But I feel like that leaves potential for him to play many other types of roles and the one he's been typecast in see i haven't seen enough of him to know like what his style is but looking at him i feel like he should be more like nerdy roles like he Mm -hmm. looks like a nerd he does play a nerd in doctor who but like a fun nerd (laughs) he's he's very intense i feel like because he has that non-traditional look uh like a character like like they play in in the crown for instance where he's uh plays uh prince philip it's very much um a, a case where uh, there's a disarming masculinity about him where he where he brings out an anger and a resentfulness that you don't expect coming from a guy who looks like that. So he, Ooh, he's yeah. able, it's capable of um, he's capable of playing outside of what he looks like in ways that are very very surprising and interesting. Yeah, yeah. he taps into that anger pretty well in Doctor Who too, to a great surprise. He's able to flip his emotions and his tone at the de- at the drop of a hat, which is very impressive to me. And um, I think that he that played well into a more volatile character like the Doctor. But um, I haven't seen anything that's been able to stretch his uh, his acting chops. Although I, from what I hear of the Crown, it sounds like it does too. But he's still kind of the bad guy in a lot of sense. You know, I know this is kind of like the follow up to Venom. This is another Spider Man spinoff. Ht does. Matt Smith's involvement in this get you any more excited for this this film? It does make me slightly more interested, even though I have no interest in watching Jared Leto play the lead in this either. Yeah. I wish they could switch roles, or at least just like, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder if it'll do well. I, I don't know how like Matt Smith's track record with blockbusters has been so far. I, I feel like I was so against Venom. I had no interest in seeing it. It looked horrible to me. And um, I, I agree, it's a bad movie. 
but I somewhat enjoyed watching it. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping the same thing happens here. Yeah, what I'm wondering is that Venom was a surprise hit, but it was a surprise with the character like lots of people know and who's really popular. Morbius still being vampire is niche even for some comic book fans. He's not a well-known guy. So I, I'm going to put $5 down on this podcast right now that the there will be a Tom Hardy cameo in Morbius. They'll be heavily used in the trailers to say, look, it's, it's actually a sequel to Venom in some ways. Oh, definitely. Let's move on to Ron Howard's next movie. He's following up his uh, biggest box office hit of all time, which was considered a box office disappointment, solo Star Wars story, with now a Netflix movie. Yeah, so Ron Howard is the latest filmmaker to land a multi-million dollar deal with Netflix. He is directing a film called Hillbilly Elegy, which uh, is now been picked up by the streaming service for a whopping $45 million. Um, they won out a competitive bidding situation, but apparently had doubled the offers of all the other rivals. So Netflix took it away very easily. Um, Hillbilly Elegy will be directed by Howard and penned by The Shape of Water screenwriter Vanessa Taylor. And it's based off of a memoir of the same name by J.D. Vance, uh, which told his um, personal story about growing up in the Rust Belt and examines a race and privilege in America. It was a huge bestseller in 2016 for about 74 weeks and um, was is apparently a passion project for Ron Howard as well. I know this just might be me, but it seems like Netflix is getting a lot of amazing talent to come over and make things I'm not on the surface interested about. This doesn't seem like something I want to see, but maybe the reason why he's at Netflix is no one else was going to give him that $45 million to make it other than Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like Netflix is really encouraging high-profile filmmakers to film to make their passion projects that no other studio would want to toss over that much money for but netflix is willing because they have apparently an endless supply of cash just bottomless well yeah yeah not if 27 percent of their subscribers unsubscribe as we mentioned yesterday but uh we'll see uh let's move on to the oscars uh which am i correct is not uh, they're not going to have hosts this year that's what yes, that's no the assumption. Yeah, they haven't officially announced that, but that's what everybody seems to assume. Yeah, so they're not going to have hosts, and now we've learned that they're only only two of the Oscar-nominated songs will be performed at this year's ceremonies. So, what is going on here, Jacob? Like, what what are the Oscars going to actually be? It's a really good question. The report from Variety today or yesterday, late yesterday, was that only "Shallow" from *A Star Is Born* and all the stars in *Black Panther* will be performed live at the Oscars, and. Naturally, the music branch of the Academy is apparently very upset about this. The various camps representing the other three nominees, who are uh, The Place Where Lost Things Go from Mary Poppins Returns, All Fight from RGB, and When a Cowboy Trade Dispers for Wings from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, all their respective studios and talent are also very upset about this. And this is clearly a move by the Oscar producers to uh, keep the show short. We've heard uh, over the past year about all these extravagant plans to keep the Oscars moving faster and smoother and not go over three hours. And that includes giving out certain awards during commercials, which is already a really big friggin' insult to those people who are winning those awards. But also now uh, performing only the two songs that are most popular as opposed to all three nominated songs. If they had said, let's cut all performances um, to save time, I would have been okay with that. But just picking the two that most people know and just saying the other three don't matter is like it's slapped in the face to people who are here to be not who are here to be awarded by, by their industry and by their peers. And that, and like, just this whole thing is, I don't understand what they want the Oscars to be. They uh, clearly wanted a, a comedic host. They, they pursued Kevin Hart, and, and that fell apart, of course. But they clearly 
like aren't going to get rid of the comedy bits. They aren't going to get rid of you know the montages that tell us things we already know. They aren't going to get rid of the probably lengthy musical introduction that nobody, everybody, like nobody likes or wants to sit through. Like to keep, like I don't know what show they want. If they want to keep it to three hours, make it awards and awards only. Maybe a little bit of banter if people take the stage or present it. But like I'm just looking at this, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a person who says the Oscars are sacred. But they are, for a lot of people, like a window into the best films of the year, what people should be watching, how you learn about movies. Like, when I was a kid, I watched them obsessively because it's where I learned about what movies I should be watching and what people did on film sets and what, you know, sound mixing and sound editing were. And between them trying to make a more bankable show by cutting out three song nominees and putting people's awards during commercials, they're sacrificing the spirit of what thing is supposed to represent. And screw, screw all that, Peter. I'm really angry about this. I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> I mean, I am on your side, Jacob, but to place devil's advocate, you know, these award shows are getting longer and longer. And even me, someone who cares about, you know, who wins the short film awards and who wins all these technical awards, like, it just seems to drag and drag. And you got to think of it two ways. Yes, it's an award show that's supposed to uh, award all these people. But on the other hand, it's also supposed to be a piece of entertainment in itself that is supposed to uh, keep people wanting to tune in and wanting to be excited about seeing these, these awards. So you, you got to – HD, how do you find a good balance? <laughs> That's a big question that I don't know <laughs> if I can answer. Um, I – I I think by starting with having all the musical interludes, um, the musical uh, performances, because I that those are the parts I I actually always enjoy, and um, sometimes seeing them live is uh, makes a big difference in my opinion for like which ones should win. I remember last year the Greatest Showman's, um, This Is Me was nominated. I don't I remember thinking that that wasn't the greatest song for them to nominate, but uh, watching the live performance and seeing how. Uh, soaring and inspiring it was, I realized, oh, this is why. And um, I, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying about just like having it be an entertaining show and having it be something that people will want to tune into. Um, at the same time, just like putting ratings over uh, the industry and that they're actually trying to award and they're trying to give, give an appreciation of feels just um, disconcerting concerning um i'd say i'd say shitty but you know uh, i'll be a little more blunt here <laughs> i i do i just feel like there there must be a way to package this to the general public in an entertaining way without uh compromising itself too much like i feel like i want to see these like smaller awards get awarded on the show but maybe you could do it in a way that it's not a you know eight minute segment you know where you kind of you know list the nominees and then cut to the guy up on stage giving his speech and you know that's like a minute and a half do you know what i mean and it, mm. it, it, i know that like then you're prioritizing some awards over others and that sends a message but i don't know i don't have an if answer afford, if they can afford to send a bunch of celebrities into a movie theater for a comedy bit they can cut that crap and just <laughs> spend the time let the sound editor for yeah. the one time in his life take the stage yeah yeah and, or, or, or or let Tim Blake Nelson perform his song for the Bella Bunch of Scruggs. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll be honest here. Seeing Lady Gaga sing Shallow will be amazing, but seeing Tim Blake Nelson sing on the Oscar stage will be even more amazing. So you know what? Let Tim Blake Nelson sing. Well, maybe Tim Blake Nelson didn't want to sing. 
okay, let's move on to Wonder Woman. Uh, it's now been revealed that Wonder Woman 3 could end the trilogy for director Patty Jenkins. Ichi, what do we know? Patty Jenkins uh, discussed some of her plans for Wonder Woman 3, which she has already started to uh, sketch out, according to a, an interview with Vanity Fair that she recently um, was part of. So she said... Um, quote, I have pretty clear plans for Wonder Woman 3. Whether I direct it or not, I see how her arc should end in my incarnation of Wonder Woman. I have great passion for that. So her comments suggest that um, she will be directing Wonder Woman 3, which has not officially been greenlit by Warner Brothers yet. But we can probably it's probably set in stone at this point because of the huge commercial success of uh, Wonder Woman and also the high anticipation for Wonder Woman 1984. Um, but, um, but, but the question here is, does this mean that Wonder Woman 3 would be the end of Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman? Is that like what she's saying? I don't think that's what she's saying in particular. I think that she's suggesting that she will part ways with the the series or the character after Wonder Woman 3, but I don't think that'll be the last for Gal Gadot. This is just my complete speculation, though, but this is um, the last, as she says, for her incarnation of Wonder Woman. Um, maybe it's, it's possible that Gal Gadot will appear in other you know, crossover films, Justice yeah. films, if that you know ever happens, but it seems that Patty Jenkins has a pretty clear vision of what she wants the arc for Diana Prince, her Wonder Woman, to be. And it's, that's going to be in those three movies. Now, I know uh, you love this, uh, that first film. And mm-hmm. knowing what we know of the sequel, what what do you think that arc is? Do you, do you have any ideas? Hmm. I think it will probably have to do with her, her relationship with humanity. Um, it's something that was definitely explored in the first one. Uh, and how she learns, she yet, you know, has high hopes for humanity and believes them to be ultimately good. And she comes to realize that they operate in grays, but that is, that's okay as well. Um, whereas in 1984, it, that might be tested or she's been away from humanity for too long that she has to relearn about what makes them good. And then perhaps we'll see the, the end of that, the finale of that in um, Wonder Woman 3. I'm also wondering how the whole story with uh, one of our favorite Chris's is going to evolve through that that franchise. But we'll have to see. Uh, let's move on to our last story, and that is Resident Evil, uh, which was a popular video game series, became a, I guess, kind of popular movie series. They made so many sequels of them. I guess it was popular. I don't know who watches them. But now it is uh, going to become a TV series at Netflix. Jacob, what do we know? The answer to the question, Peter, who watches them? I, I, Jacob Hall, watch <laughs> Resident Evil movies. I've seen them all. And they range from uh, entertaining junk, junk to very bad junk that I still like watching because I'm weird. But um, yeah, uh, Constantine Films, who produced all six Resident Evil movies, is working with Netflix to make a series. And the question here. Is that it? Well, this is this replacing the newly announced reboot film that was that was just revealed last month that Strangers Pray at Night director Johannes Roberts is working on. Uh, that's unknown. My my guess is probably run concurrently. The other thing is that Deadline, who broke the story, notes that um, this will expand the Resident Evil universe and deepen the existing mythology. What makes up this the show is going to be connected to the existing movies in some way. And uh, I read about this at length in Slash Film, but I think this is a mistake. Because just today, uh, Capcom, who makes Resident Evil uh, games, is re- is releasing their remake of Resident Evil 2 from 1998. 
It's a top to bottom remake of the of the game, and it's uh, I played the thirty minute demo they released, and it's spectacular. And it's a reminder that Resident Evil before the movies was a horror series. You you never had enough bullets, monsters could overwhelm you in any second. It's very scary. You're just you're running constantly, sweating constantly, and trying to survive. Whereas in the movies, it was just lots of slow motion explosions and lots of people killing monsters effortlessly. So what I'm hoping here is that Constantine Films and Netflix sees this as an opportunity to make a horror show. Look at the success of horror on Netflix, and of which there's been quite a bit, and return it to its roots. Because the interest and in the reviews of the new Resident Evil 2 remake suggest that people are ready for Resident Evil to be horror again. And while I have a soft spot for the movies and their B-movie charms, they're big, dumb action movies, whereas Resident Evil was originally built to be a genuinely scary, chilling experience. So we'll see where this goes. There's no showrunner yet. There's no official like, announcements yet. This is all, you know, still in the works. But my fingers are crossed that whatever they make here will not be similar to the movies. I hope so. I was going to ask you if uh, if evil Paul Anderson would be involved. The, the, you know, the <laughs> evil one. There's two of two Paul Andersons in this in, in this timeline. One makes the uh, good artsy movies and the other makes uh, th- this kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so far he's not attached at all, at least in, in, in here, because I said there's no showrunner yet. He's not involved in the new reboot movie. So my guess is that uh, uh, Mr. Paul W. Sanderson has moved on to do whatever he does these days, which is, I don't know, I have a soft spot for Paul Anderson. He's made three <laughs> different movies I, I genuinely like. I, I think Death Race and Event Horizon are genuinely good, but I'm a, I'm a moron, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's enjoyable crap. Um, <laughs> H, do you have any experience with the the Resident Evil I movies? I have none at all. No. Okay. Uh, you know what? We're gonna throw it over to Brad, Ben, and Chris, who are in Park City, and are gonna talk about the first day of Sundance, including seeing uh, that Alien documentary after the wedding and Native Son, and uh, we'll hear how Chris, if Chris survived his his plane flight. So I'm throwing it to them right now. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined here by my two uh, Sundance compatriots, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Guys, we are here in Park City, Utah. It is 12.18 a.m. on Friday morning as we're recording this. Uh, It's very cold outside. Late Thursday night, early Friday morning. Uh, Brad and I got in early enough in the day where we were able to see some movies, so we're going to do a a little bit of a recap, uh, quick first reactions to what we've seen. Uh, Chris got in late enough where you haven't had a chance to see any movies yet, so let's start with you. How was your flight? I know that uh, listeners are probably wondering how you handled your flight, your cross-country flight. uh, I I was very nervous at first, but I gotta say, I don't know if it's because the flight was so long, It it was like close to five hours, but after the first hour, I settled in and... I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm over it. We'll see. We'll wow. see when I have to go. I'm saying that now, but when yeah. I have to go home in four days, I'm going to be like, Ugh. but for now, I'm okay. Were you, were you able to watch anything? Uh, I watched, what did I watch? I rewatched that Bruce Springsteen on Broadway thing because it was nice. light and charming. Nice. And I started watching The Mummy with Brendan Fraser because that's available to download on Netflix. <laughs> You're cheating on the dark universe. Yeah, guys. well, don't tell them. <laughs> uh, all right, so Brad, you want to kick us off? What did you get a chance to check out and what did you think about it? Sure, yeah. So uh, I kicked Sundance off with a documentary. Uh, and it was one of my uh, anticipated picks that we talked about in our Sunday's episode before the festival. Uh, it's called Memory, the Origins of Alien. Uh, it's directed by Alexander O. Philippi. 
who directed a movie at Sundance a couple years ago called 7852, which was a, a documentary that focused on the, uh, solely the shower scene from Psycho and featured a bunch of talking heads from filmmakers, uh, professors, critics, uh, actors, all these people, just giving different context, perspective, and really breaking down the shower scene from Psycho in this really interesting and intricate way. Um, and Alien, this, uh, this documentary about Alien, does kind of the same thing, except it's, um, it's, that's really more the second half of the movie, and it focuses on the chestburster scene, um, and it breaks down just, like, different details and things you might not even notice, even if you've seen the movie 20 times, mm-hmm. there's just these, you know, really astute observations about how certain scenes are framed, and just little tiny ticks in people's performances and that kind of thing. So is it more about the filmmaking or it's mo- it's a lot about the, it's still a lot about the filmmaking but the it's a, for me it felt a little uneven simply because the movie starts off by focusing more so on Dan O'Bannon who's the original screenwriter of the movie and it gives some context as to like the the things that fed into his ideas for this movie, you know, like ideas that he took from old classic sci-fi comics and this uh, weird obsession and fear that he had with certain kinds of bugs, like uh, wasps and, and deadly insects. Um, and you get you know shots of these uh, bugs and things that really give you an idea as to why he was drawn to you know um, the designs of H.R. Uh, Geiger and like how those kind of influenced Alien. And the, but like it's weird because there's still this disconnect because he's he's still only the screenwriter and a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff was a big part of the larger production team. And so right. it doesn't feel like, it feels like the match is kind of a little bit forced, but it, he does try to make this bridge by almost saying that there's this like bond between us as like humans and people where we're drawn to the same things. And like they, they, the reason these people came together is because they have the same mm. fascinations and that's, and then also ties it into why uh, alien is kind of this, you know, cultural phenomenon and why everyone else is also just entranced by it. And so it's, it's interesting, but it, it feels like it doesn't quite come together as this kind of profound documentary that it, it feels like it's trying to be. The one question that I think a lot of people are going to have about this is, did you learn anything that you didn't already know about Alien? Yeah, there there are definitely some some new new tidbits in here that I, I at least I wasn't familiar with. You know, there's um, it seems like that there's some stuff in here that even hardcore um, Alien fans probably won't know about. So yeah, I, th- I think that there's there's good stuff in here for the hardcore uh, fans who seem to know everything there's to know about Alien, mm. and also for people who maybe just, you know, have only seen Alien a few times. Okay, all right. I had a chance to see a movie called After the Wedding, which is directed by Bart Frundlicht, and it stars Michelle Williams and Julianne Moore, Abby Quinn, and Billy Crudup. Um, this movie is a remake of a 2006 movie of the same name from Suzanne Beer, who directed Bird Box. I have not seen that version, but this version of After the Wedding is... I found it to be sort of a messy, muddled movie that never really comes together. Um, the performances from Williams and Moore are both, they seem very strained. I'm not sure what was going on there, but the premise is Michelle Williams plays uh, an American who's living in India. She works in an orphanage, and one day she gets a phone call from uh, a high-powered businesswoman played by Julianne Moore, and the businesswoman wants to provide funding for the Indian orphanage. And uh, Teresa, Julianne Moore's character, demands that Michelle Williams' character come to New York City face-to-face to work out the, de- the details of this, um, this uh, funding that is going to go through. And uh, when she is there, Teresa invites Isabel to her daughter's wedding, and that setting becomes 
uh, a sort of powder keg of emotions and there's a revelation about the relationship between all of these people and that how uh, it's not what we originally thought that it was. So this movie, for me, it, it really couldn't find a balance between this sort of contemplative uh, reflection and a lot of interiority, especially with Michelle Williams' character. There's a lot of shots of her just like looking off into the middle distance and really thinking about this new information that she's learned about her life. And on the other hand, it, it sort of whiplashes back and forth between that and like this really um, intense, fiery, uh, almost like uh, emotional outbursts. And to me, none of it felt genuine. There's just a, a sense of artificiality and like in like not um i don't know a sense of artificiality to the whole thing i could never really dial in on the characters and get um and and care about what they were going through uh i don't know I, i'm i'm gonna i'm trying to work through all of my feelings about this and you'll probably be able to read that in my review but yeah i was very disappointed with after the wedding um i, I do want to say really quickly though that billy crudup is is really good in this movie he plays uh, uh julian moore's husband and he's an artist in the film uh, he's just an actor uh, that i want to give a shout out to because i feel like he has been consistently great in hollywood for uh, you know over a decade and he's just so underutilized, it seems. So I, I hope Billy Crudup gets more roles. Um, he plays like a charismatic dad in this, but he also can can really um, turn on a dime into this really uh, deep, profound sadness that that emanates from behind his eyes. And it's it's one of his best, one of his better performances in recent years, I'll say. Um, so that is after the wedding. I, I was kind of bummed out about that. I also had a chance to see Native Son, which is an adaptation of Richard Wright's 1940 novel, which I have not read. But as a single film, even, you know, divorced from the context and the comparisons to the novel, this movie is very, very good. Uh, it stars Ashton Sanders, who played the teenage version of Chiron in Moonlight. And man, this guy is legit. He is um, definitely a young up and coming actor to watch. I mean, as if Moon Moonlight didn't tell us that. Um, he is he's really, I mean, he is like the focus of this movie and he carries the entire thing on his shoulders. Um, he's terrific. Uh, Margaret Qualley from The Leftovers is in this. Uh, Bill Camp, who appeared in like Molly's Game and he was in The Night Of on HBO, he is in this. Um, there, it's got a really solid cast. Kiki Lane, who uh, recently starred in If Beale Street Could Talk, plays the main character's girlfriend, and she is terrific as well. She, I mean, she is here to stay. I think If Beale Street Could Talk was her first movie performance, and um, seeing what she can do here and how she's really able to sort of let her hair down in a totally different type of role uh, is very encouraging because I'm, I'm excited to see what she does in, in years to come as a, a bright young actress. So the premise of Native Son is uh, Ashton Sanders plays a guy named Big Thomas who is a, uh, he lives in Chicago, he's got green hair, he's really into punk music, he sort of defies all of the stereotypes about black people, um, and, and he does so in the movie. Uh, people make, stere you know, make assumptions about him and his character all the time, uh, and he just sort of like rolls his eyes and, and lets it roll off his back. But the premise of the movie is that he ends up getting a job as a driver, like a chauffeur, for a really, really rich white family in the north side of Chicago. And... They have a progressive teenage daughter who is very, like, at certain points she asks him, like, what do black people think about what's going on in the world? There's, there's a lot of, um, this movie has a lot to say about race relations and 
but not in, in an overt, you know, heavy-handed kind of way that makes you roll your eyes. Um, it's it's a, a very smart film, and I think um, the performances alone really make it worth watching. There is, I, I don't want to give away anything in this movie, but there is a moment in this movie, a holy shit moment, that rivals... Um, I don't know anything I've seen in the past uh, couple years, just in terms of like, wow, I can't believe they're doing this. And this is totally unexpected. It's not like, um, I don't want to, I don't want to set the bar too high, but uh, I was very surprised by what I saw in this movie. And it certainly takes a turn. We'll put it that way. Um, don't expect, you know, this, this turn from like, sorry to bother you or anything like that. It's not quite that drastic, but because uh, the movie stays even keel all the way throughout. It doesn't suddenly drift off into, you know, a totally different tone or style of movie. But this is the first film from Rashid Johnson. This is his directorial debut. And I'm obviously very excited to see what he does next as well. So um, definitely uh, keep an eye out for Native Son and maybe not so much after the wedding. Uh, Chris, any thoughts about what you're expecting, uh, now that you're here in Park City, what you've got maybe planned for tomorrow, anything that you're looking forward to? Uh, I'm looking forward to actually seeing movies. That'll be fun. <laughs> yes. And yeah, it's, it's too early to tell. You'll, you'll have to check back in with me when I'm finally, finally in, in the groove. Cause right now I'm still kind of jet lagged. Yes. Uh, Brad, do you have anything in particular that you're looking forward to? Any anything you've overheard maybe at this point in the festival from anybody? I know it's early; it's it's midnight on the first day. But uh, <laughs> anything that you've heard uh, buzz wise or anything like that? Um, I did talk to some people who saw Apollo Eleven mm-hmm. uh, this evening, and they said that it was uh, it was very good. It's one of those documentaries that you do want to see on the big screen, hmm. uh, just simply because it's um, comprised of all this archival footage from when they actually, you know, had the Apollo 11 mission. Apparently, like, first of all, it comes to the sound, just the rumbling of the rocket. Uh, kind of rem- reminded me of just, like, how I felt uh, when seeing First Man. Like, it just made me think of that. Mm-hmm. So, I, so hopefully the documentary uh, will, will bring that same kind of feeling. I'm hoping to catch it uh, before we, we leave here, but I don't know if I'll be able to fit in my schedule. All right. Yeah, I think we have uh, a bunch of stuff planned. I'm not sure how many more podcasts we're going to do, but stay tuned. We'll see how that goes. Uh, if nothing else, we'll catch up with a, a Best of the Fest es- uh, episode after we're done. But that's going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. For more of all of our work, you can follow our reviews and all that stuff from Sundance at SlashFilm.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I am at Ben Pears. Chris is... Uh, C Evangelist 413. And Brad? At Ethan underscore Anderton. And if you have uh, any questions or comments or concerns, you can send your feedback to Peter at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilmDaily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Tell your friends and subscribe. Spread the word. We'll talk to you next time.